0: Been a real privilege to to try and find a way to answer this question that humans have been asking for millennia. We haven't found an answer yet. We might not in my lifetime. It might be my granddaughter that succeeds, or maybe no one will succeed because perhaps the answer is that we're alone. Doesn't seem very likely, but we don't know. Jill Tartar
1: has devoted most of her professional life looking up at the stars in the search for life elsewhere in the universe. For over four decades, Tartar has been leading the way in attempting to answer the old human question, are we alone? An award-winning astrophysicist, Tartar is a pioneer in the field of SETI, or search for extraterrestrial intelligence, having been named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine in 2004. Along the way, she has also been immortalized in popular culture. Her work was the inspiration behind the character Ellie Arroway in Carl Sagan's novel Contact and subsequently in the film adaptation where she was played by Jodie Foster. Though she officially retired in 2012, she never ceased to look for answers. I'm Carlotta Rubello, and I'm pleased to say that I met up with Jill Tarter at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, for The Big Interview. Jill Tarter, welcome to The Big Interview on Monocle 24. Let's begin in uh, New York State. I would like to understand a bit of your childhood and how was it like to grow up there in the 1950s, 60s?
0: Yeah, well, I grew up in a commute town for New York City on the Grand Central Railroad line, a town called Eastchester, and lived in an apartment complex that was right on a lake. So I was one of these kids who swam before I could walk, and it was a lot of fun on that lake. And I spent a lot of time with my dad out in a canoe fishing in the evenings. And, of course, then you lost your
1: dad at a young age. But I've read in some interviews that you've given in the past how you spoke about, you know, observing the sky at night with him, for example. Is that something that you did regularly, or is this one memory that still stays with you until today?
0: No, it's something that I did on a number of occasions, particularly when we visited my aunt and uncle, who were beachcombers in the keys of the west coast of Florida. And so walking along the shoreline at night, Where there were no lights, it was just totally beautifully dark and looking at the sky with my dad was was a frequent occurrence. He had had the opportunity to go to Swarthmore to study astronomy. Instead, he became a professional football player for a short time. And then when did it come to your decision then
1: to go to Cornell and study engineering physics?
0: Well, Cornell was my maiden name. And being in New York and a good student, I had a New York scholarship as well. So it was going to be some university within the state. And I had decided very early when I was eight years old that I was going to be an engineer, even though I don't think I really knew what engineers were. And Cornell had a great engineering physics program. And I got my engineering degree and then turned around and said, hmm, you know, if engineers are as boring as my professors, I'm going to find something else to do, and went into astronomy.
1: We'll get to the path into astronomy in a second, but I'm interested in, you know, that decision. How do you even make the decision when you're eight years old? Is it more, you know, a rebellious act almost about what society wants you to do? Or you were just fascinated by by the field itself?
0: No, no, it's it's the former. So I had spent all my childhood growing up hunting and fishing and camping with my dad. I was the ultimate tomboy. And at some point, my mother had a conversation with my father. And he then sat me up on the washing machine, which is where we had our conversations eye to eye. And he said, well, your mom thinks that you're now old enough. You should be spending time with her, learning how to do girl things. You couldn't have said anything that would have ticked me off anymore. I just was furious. I didn't see why the world would require you to make a choice of one or the other, why you couldn't do both. And after tears, because that always works to get your dad on your side... In a long conversation, he told me, well, you know, as as long as you're willing to work hard, you can do whatever you want. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to be an engineer because it was the most masculine thing I could think of. Then when my dad died, I was stuck with that and that stubbornness and wanting to make my dad proud. And my path was set early on. And at the time
1: of your undergraduate degree, you were the only woman out of 300 students. That must have been intimidating at times. Did you have to earn respect from your peers and even
0: professors? Well, I was going to do that anyway, because I was really a nerd. I studied hard and was intent on getting really good grades. I think the backlash was that when my grades were higher than my fellow male students, they took some umbrage at that. And at this time, Cornell acted in loco parentis, which meant that female students had to be locked into their dorms every night at 10 o'clock, and we didn't get released from jail until 6 o'clock the next morning. I found that really difficult because my engineering colleagues, students, were off wherever they wanted to be and sharing problem sets, right? So you do the odd numbers, I'll do the even numbers and that kind of thing. But because I was confined to my dorm. I ended up doing all the work myself. I got a better education, had a lousy social life, but that was part of the deal. I got the advantage that whereas the professors barely knew any of the other students, every professor knew who I was, and so I had an access to them that was not available to my peers. There were lots of pluses and lots of minuses in the situation. The really good thing is that as of 2018, freshman year, the Cornell Engineering School is now 51% female students. So that's a huge shift in the culture. So things have changed for the better. But it was what it was.
1: Now, you went from engineering then to astronomy. When did the switch happen to you in your mind? When did you decide or started to gain this interest in space, let's say?
0: by the end of my program i really was getting frustrated with the restrictions that the engineering field was was trying to impose i didn't like the idea that it was in their minds better to solve a new problem by tweaking an old solution rather than to look at innovative new solutions and i was in a slight limbo Because after I finished my degree, my husband at that time had not yet finished his PhD thesis. And so we stayed around Cornell for another year. And during that time, I just took all kinds of different courses that I had never been able to take. And one of the courses was a course on star formation taught by Ed Salpeter, a fabulous astrophysicist. I was just blown away by that course the way he presented it and the idea that, that stars had an actual life cycle and that we could learn about uh, different outcomes for different mass stars really just turned me in. I said, yeah, my undergraduate training has given me some really, really good problem-solving skills. I'm good at that. And this is a problem that's interesting, much more interesting than the problems I was seeing from the engineering side. So that's how the the shift took place. I went looking for interesting problems to use my skills on, and I found them in astronomy.
1: And perhaps one of the most interesting problems of all times the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm curious to know how you end up in this particular field, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but. Isn't this a field that in the beginning wasn't taken that seriously either? Not only were you the only woman in your class, and then you picked a field that wasn't even the most popular within astronomy too.
0: Well, that's correct. I mean, there was a what's-a-nice-girl-like-you-doing-in-a-subject-like-this sort of attitude at the time. For me, SETI was just a really fortunate accident. I didn't set out to get a PhD in astronomy in order to do SETI. But my first year as a graduate student in Berkeley, I had an assistantship that paid me to learn how to program the first desktop computer that we ever had. It actually took two people to lift it onto your desk, but it was a personal computer, and there was no programming language. You had to uh, set all the ones and zeros for each command. And years later, That particular piece of equipment was given to Professor Stu Boyer at UC Berkeley, and Stu had a clever idea about how to piggyback on the university's 85-foot telescope at Hat Creek and use the data in a different way than the astronomers who were collecting the data and analyze it for engineered signals. He had been following the work that was being done at NASA Ames by John Billingham and and the Cyclops Report that had been written in the early 70s about how you might detect extraterrestrial intelligence using radio telescopes. And he said, oh, we got one of those. Let's figure it out. But he had no money, and so when this piece of surplus retired equipment was given to him, he said, well, what the hell do I do with this? And somebody said, well, Jill's still here. She used to work on this. And so he came to my office, and Stu had a recruiting document, the Cyclops Report. And I read that cover to cover, and I was impressed by the fact that I was alive at the right place in the right time with the right set of skills, the mix of engineering and astronomy, to think about working on trying to find an answer to this old question. And so I literally got hooked, and I've just stayed hooked, and it's been a real privilege to to try and find a way to answer this question that humans have been asking for millennia. We haven't found an answer yet. We might not in my lifetime. It might be my granddaughter that succeeds, or maybe no one will succeed because perhaps the answer is that we're alone. Doesn't seem very likely, but we don't know. So we need to do the experiment. We need to do the observations.
1: Has it been tough along the way to convince skeptics that it's worth investing <laughs> in research like this?
0: Yes, that uh, that has been a battle that we fought here at the SETI Institute since its founding in 1984. We've done this scientific exploration the same way that you would do any kind of scientific exploration. We've written the papers, we've written the proposals, we've made our work very public and open and tried to allow people to understand what we were trying to do and how we were going to do it and why it is a good idea. And little by little, we have actually gained the legitimacy and the credibility. And now that we know that every star has a planet, statistically, and that we have discovered this incredible realm of life that we call extremophiles, living in conditions that, as a student, I would have been taught were totally uninhabitable and sterile, and finding that, no, they're not at all, that evolution has provided... The ability for all kinds of life forms to adapt to circumstances that would be intolerable to you and me, but uh, for which they are supremely fitted, the combination of exoplanets and extremophiles now makes it just inevitable that given there is potentially so much habitable real estate out there in the universe, you can't avoid asking the question whether any of it is actually inhabited and If any of that, life is intelligent. It's just the natural next step.
1: Do you think it's an interesting time right now for the field with all these private companies that are now suddenly turning their eyes up to the sky uh, from, you know, SpaceX to even the president's Space Force, I guess? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, I think it's an incredibly exciting time. I often title a lecture, The 21st Century, the Century of Biology on Earth and Beyond because I think within this century we're going to know a great deal more about the prevalence of life, certainly within our solar system and perhaps beyond to the nearest stars. There's some incredible tools that are going to be coming online. We are thinking about missions, so far mostly robotic, to investigate regions within the solar system that surprisingly might be habitable and might even be inhabited. So it's a really exciting time. It makes me really ticked off that I'm not younger and won't see the century out and see what unfolds. But I think there's lots of excitement and new information and knowledge to be gained.
1: How do you deal with disappointment after a possible sign of life turns out to be false?
0: In one noticeable occasion... You end up having to apologize to your colleagues in California from West Virginia. We've had false positives. It's an incredible adrenaline rush. It it is really so exciting that you do dumb things. You make mistakes. You write a computer program that would have alerted you to the fact that you'd seen this signal before from another direction on the sky, and it wasn't something that was actually worthy of following up on. But you write the program, that was a good idea, but then you're so excited that you misread the output and you don't see the very thing that you were looking for. So you continue tracking this target until it sets. And then at that point you understand that whatever it is wasn't actually coming from that star because the change of the Doppler shift of the signal was appropriate for an object that was just coming up to the zenith over your head rather than something that was setting on the western horizon. So you leave the observatory and go off to dinner with the understanding that, no, this isn't it, and then go to bed. And again, forget to tell your colleagues in California that, no, this isn't what we had hoped. And they stay up, into the middle of the night, waiting for that source to rise again the next morning. So you end up having to mend some fences when you come back home. But this hasn't happened very often, but when it does, it is truly memorable. And yes, it's disappointing when it turns out, as it has thus far, to be false positives and not the thing we were actually looking for. But what you do with that disappointment is you rewrite the set of procedures that you should go through to verify the next time it happens. And so you get better and smarter about figuring out what the potential signal is actually coming from.
1: Does it also help in understanding the protocol if it turned out not to be a false positive? Not only the way you yourself react to it and the team reacts to it, but what needs to be in place afterwards.
0: Yes. Every one of these is a dress rehearsal for what may eventually be the real thing. We learned that even though no one told anybody about what we were doing in Green Bank, West Virginia at the telescope, the news leaked out anyway. So it's a cautionary tale that we probably will not have the kind of time available in our own bubble, able to act clinically and analytically as long as we might like to figure out the next time this happens, whether it's the real thing or not. The information going to get out sooner than we might like, and we just have to be prepared for that.
1: Do you have an image or an idea of what this
0: extraterrestrial life might look, sound, be like? How do you picture it, I guess? We're actually using SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, That's actually a misnomer. So what what we're doing is we're using technology as a proxy for intelligence. So what we're looking for is evidence of someone else's technology. Having said that, that probably means that we're looking for organisms that are not microscopic in size because they have to build some technology that we can detect over interstellar distances. But now as we expand... Our concept of what might be a techno signature. I guess I once would have said, no, they're going to be meter size, whatever. They're going to have to build something to transmit. But perhaps swarms of microbial organisms could, in fact, do some sort of engineering that isn't quite technology, but could alter their environment in ways that new telescopes that are coming on the air in the next couple of decades might detect. And so inadvertently, they might transform their environment in a way that looks like it's been engineered. So I basically think I can't say anything about what they'd look like. And actually, I really don't give a damn. I want to answer the question. And they're welcome to look however suits them.
1: Do you think that somehow the public's view and perspective and understanding of all of this is tainted by sci-fi, by movies, by novels, this idea of, you know, an alien invasion when it's it's not about that?
0: Well, not all sci-fi is like that. There's some Mm -hmm. really good stuff out there, and I think that it sparked the imagination of a lot of young people who have then ended up going into STEM fields and are looking for solutions to the problems we have. And there's some horrible sci-fi that is just ridiculous and reflects our own paranoia. We used to talk about angels and archangels, and now we've got E.T. and aliens as the newest reflection of our own internal fears.
1: Are you a fan of the genre? Do you read? Or
0: I certainly did as a young person. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of science fiction. Don't have all that much time for doing it now, but Arthur Clarke and Asimov and Heinlein were were really influential for me as a young person.
1: Now, you were the inspiration for the character Ellie Arroway and the novel Contact from 1985. You were then portrayed on screen by Jodie Foster. How did that come about and how was that
0: experience for you? Well, In the mid 80s, I was back at Cornell at a symposium and ran into Carl and he said, Oh, we're having a cocktail party at the house. Come on up tonight. And when I got there, Carl and Ann took me aside and they said, "Um, Carl's writing a science fiction book. And I said, Oh, yeah, I know. We read in the New York Times about how large uh, an advance he got and we're all jealous as hell, right? And so Ann said, Well, you may think that you recognize someone in the book, but I think you'll like her. Carl wrote about what he knew about the SETI program, and he wrote about what was in the air at the time. He even included his own personal favorite and my own personal favorite 1956 T-Bird as the sports car that Ellie Arroway drove. So it was, it was in the air, and Carl was all part of that, and the fact that there was an actual female doing the job was an obvious thing to include in the in the story.
1: Do you think that it has become easier to be a woman in science, or there's still a long way to go?
0: We're not there yet. Certainly the um, hashtag MeToo problem that has been so highlighted in the last few years in the scientific community is a big problem that we haven't yet overcome. But yes, I do think it is easier today than it once was. And I am delighted that when you look at university courses and graduate students with the new fields of exoplanetary science and astrobiology, you know, the best and the brightest of these students are are young women. And they're partially, in my opinion, because it's a new field, because it wasn't already overpopulated with old white men, these young women have been able to take on leadership roles and produce fantastic results in these new scientific fields.
1: Do you ever really retire from this uh, ultimate human
0: enterprise? Oh, heavens no. No, I think my job description will always be as a chief cheerleader for this enterprise because I think there's so many positive benefits from cooperating globally to do this job that it's worth... Talking up and supporting and enthusing about forever,
1: and I guess just finally, and something that you know's been mentioned throughout our conversation today. But what is it like to work on a problem that might never be solved during your lifetime?
0: I wouldn't be in this project if I woke up every morning and said, "Today I'm going to get a signal because you know I'd go to bed every night, probably disappointed but for me it's really rewarding to wake up in the morning and say i'm going to try and figure out how to do this job better today than i was doing it yesterday following new technologies figuring out how to do the searching in different ways and adding more strategies to our portfolio that's been very rewarding even though we haven't yet and may never find the evidence that we're searching for it's an important question and To me, as I've gotten older, it's become more important, not just for the scientific community, but for humanity as a whole. Because when we get an opportunity to go out and talk to audiences about searching for life beyond Earth, for a short time, their perspective is changed, right? If they're actually listening and paying attention, they begin to think about things they probably hadn't thought of before they walked into that lecture. And opening up people's point of view to a more cosmic perspective has the effect of saying, look, on this planet, you're all earthlings. You're all the same. So that perspective shift trivializes the differences among humans that we find so difficult to deal with today. And I think that's absolutely necessary because... We have all these challenges, and they're not challenges that respect national borders. They're challenges that have to be solved globally. And so if you can broaden people's horizons, open up their perspective to allow humanity to begin working on solutions to our problems in a global manner, I think that's really important to our long-term future. And so I've come to really value the peripheral or secondary benefits of a SETI project. Uh, And that's this idea that SETI holds up a mirror to all of us on this planet and points out the fact that we humans should get our act together and start cooperating rather than, than killing one another. And so that message, the message that we're all earthlings, if that can propagate and help to change people's attitudes and lead towards a long future, for humanity on this planet and all the other life on this planet. That's something that's really, really worthwhile and may possibly eventually eclipse the benefit of actually succeeding in finding a signal.
1: Jill Tartar, thank you very much for joining us on the big interview.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
1: My thanks to Jill Tartar. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Yolene Goffam. The researcher was Charlie Filmer-Court. I'm Carlotta Ribello. Thank you very much for listening.